Welcome to episode 127 of The Professor and the Hack. And I'm the hack. I'm also the chief cook and bottle washer. I also uh, will clean your car. And I'll also be in charge of your children's finances, if you like, because I'm wearing as many hats as I can. Uh, is this all for me, Hugh, or are you talking in your own family? Uh, no, no, no. You, you're not entitled to know this. Uh, I'll <laughs> let you know about this later. I'm just I'm just discussing my many hats with my journalist friends at the moment. You'll get to learn this later, Professor Peter Van Onselen. How are you? Good to be with you, Hugh. Uh, I've got various hats on. In fact, I'm wearing one right now as well. But uh, I, I share the cooking responsibilities if that's your role as well. And that's the way the kids like it. So here's a question for you. If you were entitled to wear other hats, what hats would you wear, Peter? You wear enough. You mean, you mean other other roles? Yeah, yeah, genuinely. I mean, you could do anything you like. Right now, you're, you're, you're a professor at two universities and you write a column for The Australian and you national political editor. How many hats do you need, Peter? The, the hat that I'm sort of, I wouldn't say hankering for, but it's where I want to go next in the years to come. This is starting to feel more like a therapy session, Hugh, but it, it's back into full-time academia eventually. Yeah, the timing of that is is open-ended, but I certainly see myself going back there at some point. You know, as you know, I was a an accidental journalist, came across from full-time academia and then sort of went from commentator to journalist, and then I sort of float between the two. But back into full-time academia is probably the only new hat that I want to wear uh, at some point, other than uh, the retirement hat, to be perfectly honest. The reading hat, I've got this, I'm looking at them now, actually. I've got this shelf that I've dedicated to the books that I haven't read that I've bought that I want to read. I've got plenty of books, like a lot of people that I've bought and flicked through but haven't finished, but I've dedicated one shelf to the ones that I'm now not going to buy any more books until I get through these. And being a full-time academic rather than a full-time journalist would give me more time to do that. What about you? Well, I'm simultaneously reading two books. One is on the Armenian Genocide. It's a massive 800-page number and a, a book on the great classical wars for Athens the Persians riding over the hill, all that kind of routine. Yeah, right. It gets very confusing when you're trying to read them both at the same time because <laughs> you tend to uh, you tend to mistake your villains. But look, we, we're straying off target here a little bit on the hats because it was really a semi-joking reference to um, to this idea. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, so <laughs> because ultimately in the end, we all have fantasy jobs, even those who love our jobs and have a great run of it. We have kind of fantasy jobs, fantasy things we'd like to do. Turns out Morrison's fantasy was what? To become a dictator who was all powerful? Is that, is that the, the implication? I mean, it's extraordinary. Like He's the prime minister. What was his fantasy? Why did he also need to be the treasurer, the finance minister, the resources minister, the industry minister, the science minister, the health minister? Why? But you've written a book about this guy. You're more in invested in understanding who he is than most people on the planet. Mm. What do you make of what is fundamentally at work there? I have an answer to this. And, you know, obviously, like everyone else, it's sort of speculation. We've heard his logic, which doesn't pass muster even slightly, in my view, and we can sort of break that down if we need to. But his defences of what he did and logic to what he did makes no sense because the bottom line is he could have done none of it and it would take him about 15 minutes to swear himself in or to use an assistant minister or something like that if something were to happen to one of these ministers. So that's a bogus argument in the extreme. Then you've got the sort of idea, which is the idea that no one really wants to consider, which is that you know, he was literally on a dictatorial path of eroding democracy. And that's what this was all about. I don't, I don't buy that either. I, I, I don't think he's that delusional or that megalomaniac in, in style. Others do. Oh, no, they do, but I don't. I, I, I don't think that he had some sort of covert plan had he won the last election to slowly but surely take away democracy in the years to come. 
If he did, he's even more delusional than people think, or some people think, I don't go that far. But here's what I think it is, plain and simple. And and there's, it's hard to get in his head, and it's hard to understand why the hell would anyone do something like this, because there's no practical value to it. There's no political value to it either, really, because out the other side of it, you know, like we now see with it being discovered, it's just rebounded horrifically on, on him and his legacy and his standing. The reason is this, Hugh, he is profoundly arrogant. That's what it comes down to. The man is profoundly arrogant and believes that the solution to every problem is more of Scott Morrison. And it was unbounded arrogance in his own legend status that he alone could save the nation from COVID, which is why I think in his delusional moments, he actually truly believes that he did the right thing. So he is just so consumed by his own standing and importance and all those elements that arrogance creates that he just thought it was fine to do it and 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 right to do it and it, it's a, an incredible indictment on what he thinks of his colleagues and it's a it, it's a real example of of somebody who personally needs to start reflecting a little bit more on themselves but i think that that is what it is at its absolute base simple and, and i say it for this reason people who have worked with him over the years and, and when we were doing the book on morrison after the last election we piece this together. People who had worked with him for many, many years, you know, there were people who liked him, and a lot of them don't like him anymore, by the way, because of this. But the people who didn't enjoy the experience of working with him almost universally say that, you know, he's just so arrogant and so self confident and doesn't think that anyone else's opinion matters for spit. This is a personification of all of that. And we didn't really see it in its fullest form until now post his prime ministership. That's what I think is going on. Well, some people would say that they did see it, of course, and the, the media didn't kind of shine enough of a light on it. Mm. But it does strike me. So let's take what you say as being, for the moment, to be absolutely true, and I won't contest it. How does he see such grandeur in his thought processes when so many people around him who were watching him saw a very mediocre operator? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, he, I don't know the answer to that other than just a straight out self-confidence, which is obviously overconfidence. That's all I can think of. I tell you what, like a lot of people would bristle at this idea, but hear me out. A proper psychological biography of Scott Morrison would actually be fascinating reading and fascinating research. But there's an important caveat you need his cooperation, which is never going to happen, right? He's never going to properly cooperate with a book like that. But to do it properly, like a a fully trained psychological biographer, political biographer, would do an amazing job on this guy because he he is an unusual fish. And were he to cooperate, the sort of some of the psychometric testing that you could do coupled with his decisions with honest reflections, even if it's his honesty rather than what an objective person might consider to be the honesty, Boy, it'd be a fascinating book by the right person. I'm not the right person for that. I haven't been trained in political psychology, but I would love reading that, not because I would be drawn to the man, but I'd be drawn to a professional trying to understand the man. And I'm not suggesting that he's you know, a walking dis- disorder. I'm not, I'm not going that far because I'm not trained to make that assessment, but I would be fascinated to get behind the veil, behind the marketing veil, even just things like those memes that he was then participating in for hours on end one evening. Was that marketing spin? Was that an example of him actually struggling to deal with what had happened and so therefore he immersed himself in it? Or was he genuinely laughing at it as he claims, which I doubt? He would be a fascinating psychological study, for mostly I think for the wrong reasons, because I think that there is a lot there that, that is potentially you know, not what you want in a leader. 
And uh, look, to answer me this, Hugh, I, I think he has, to the extent that he had one left, I think he's thoroughly trashed his legacy. I don't know if you agree with this. I mean, losing the election's hard, but now it's even worse. It's much worse. Yeah, politicians lose elections and, and they can still be well regarded by history. Hmm. I think that uh, for the time being at the moment, he's, he is a, a tagline to a joke. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's about where it is. Uh, Professor Judith Brett might be the, the writer to do that kind of thing. If she's still active, I, I don't know yeah, if she is. true. Um, I thought also Sean Kelly's book, The Game, which really went down to examine who Scott Morrison was through his utterances. It's looking better now, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it always looked good, that book, to be clear, but yes. it's, it's, it's really looking like it's hit the mark now. Yeah, I think at the time it, was a, it had an urgency because the guy was still the Prime Minister. Now it has a different purpose because you can go back, if anyone really cares to do so, to go back and try to examine more of uh, this strange character that he is. And the difficulty with it is, is that, you know, Hannah Arendt famously talks about the banality of evil. Uh, she she was examining the way in which Nazism rose and, and was unable to carry out the final solution of the murder of all the Jews as they attempted to do in, in Europe and, and others, and, and said that essentially can only run, such structures can only run through the banal processes of kind of bureaucrats willing to make it work. And and in a way, while you, you're not make, going to make any any direct correlation in this, there is something fundamentally banal about Scott. Morrison and his approach to things and the way in which he did stuff and the way in which he said, oh, look, yeah, but I didn't actually use it except for that time when I completely upended the resources policy. You know, there's something about the way in which he makes it sort of attempts to make everything seem as if he's trying to stitch it up as being something normal and proper and okay. makes you wonder about, you know, you do worry about some political leaders and instincts that go there. Yeah. And and look, don't get me wrong. Like I, like I, I, at this point, I unequivocally just think that this was a personification of his personal failure rather than some sort of evil intent. Like, I, I quite strongly hold that view. But here's the important point. My worry about what he did is that it doesn't matter what he thought was the reasoning behind why he did it or how much it was a reflection of his uh, inner demons and, and failures of arrogance and all the rest of it and conceit of, of him being in the right and all the rest of it doesn't matter if it was driven by, if you like, a, a positive belief built on a personality problem. It's what it creates institutionally. You know, the idea that institutionally it could happen and that he could think that it's okay for it to happen. That's the other part, Hugh. I mean, he's meant to be the leader then of the conservative side of politics. Conservatives are supposed to believe in institutions, checks and balances, you know, all these things that are underpinnings of democracy. But Scott Morrison was not, and the conservative movement, I think, has, has shifted a lot, you know, not just in America with Trump, but in Australia as well. It, it, it undercuts institutions and it undercuts transparency and checks and balances. And what we get left with is, is uh, uh, ultimately, yes, most of his colleagues have condemned what he's done, but he was the leader who thought it was okay to do it, flying in the face of the institutional destruction that it creates. And you know, I've said this before, but democracy dies in the dark. And Scott Morrison, when you look back at his prime ministership, enjoyed governing in the dark. And this was an example of that. Secrecy when it suits him. On water, on water matters, right from the start. Secrecy when it suits him. Populism with opening up the curtains if it suits him as well. It's all about politics and it's all about self-interest. And institutions don't matter, it would seem to someone like Scott Morrison or increasingly to conservatives. And those institutional underpinnings 
where if you like, one of the things that attracted me to conservatism in the face of all the things I didn't like with its sort of lack of socially progressive positioning and all the rest of it, it was at least a bedrock of preservation of democracy and the system that we have. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I agree that we're on a, on a unity ticket on this. I do think institutions matter. They're enormously understrained at the moment. They need to reform with time, but they matter, and, they, and, and sweeping them away opens up all kinds of doors. To which end? I presume now it will be certain. I certainly hope it will happen, and I hope it goes through without any particular disruptions in the Parliament, in the Senate or in the House. Uh, that Anthony Albanese will bring through some sort of legislation that makes it impossible to bring in or to assume ministerial positions or powers without it being clearly declared to the public when it happens. You, you wouldn't have thought that you'd even need to put that in writing. But you do now, yeah. So do you think he will? Yeah, I I'm, I'm certainly will. And I think Peter Dutton's indicated that he would support something of that ilk. So if they end up getting in the weeds and arguing about particulars, I don't think even that, which I'm not sure that will happen, but even if that did happen, I'm not sure that would be a barrier to them fixing this in some form because there's no value in in trying to preserve this level of secrecy because we, we see where it can go. It, it's extraordinary to me that, that it got to this point. And frankly, I'm a lot more critical of the Governor General than a lot of people are because you know a lot of people say, oh, don't, don't attack him, he did his duty. I don't accept that. Uh, the same reason that I actually am one of the few people who defends some of what Sir John Kerr did, not all of it, is the same reason that I condemn what Hurley didn't do here, which is to say that I don't think that a governor general is just some rubber stamp that doesn't have the that, that shouldn't think for him or herself. There was a duty, I believe, uh, in that role to recognise after you know what was it, fourteen or fifteen months of this crap, where he's signing himself one by one by one into these secret portfolios. Not to just say, well, it's not my job to publicise it. That's the job of the Prime Minister. I, I call bullshit on that. He doesn't have staff, though, does he? I mean, well, he's got staff. I mean, anybody. No, 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 no. His staff is fundamentally a ceremonial and protocol derived staff. He doesn't have a separate kind of secretariat of, of lawyers and public servants who are looking over this legislative. Yeah, but Hugh, Hugh if you're the Governor General, and, and you're literally putting your signature on a prime minister taking over all these portfolios, if you're not the kind of personality who at least asks the question about all of that or has a functioning brain to wonder whether or not this is appropriate or not, I'm sorry, but we don't need a governor general who can take a hill on an order. We need a governor general who can think for him or herself to protect the bloody constitution and the democracy that we reside in. I'm a lot more critical of this guy than most people. Morrison's the main culprit, of course, but evil happens when good men and women do nothing. Hurley did bugger all in the face of over a year's worth of a prime minister usurping portfolios. This is serious stuff, right? And I know you know that, but this is serious stuff. The fact that I think Morrison was just an arrogant twat who didn't understand the institutional importance of what he was undercutting, it doesn't get in the road of the fact that this could have been a megalomaniac. It could have been someone trying to tear apart our democracy. And all they would need is a governor general who can't think for themselves to allow that to happen. Hurley, for mine, should go. I'm strong on this. Okay, so what about the risk then, and, and you say you're an institutional conservative, that you wind up having a an activist governor general who is holding things up, who is you know, who is then saying, look, in order to do my job, I need a larger staff. I need to be have my own kind of brain bank here that is checking and independently 
taking on advice that I'm getting from the Prime Minister or the Prime Minister's department. Is that a useful development of that role? I, I think there's a halfway house here. I mean, uh, I'm not advocating for an activist Governor-General because that would go against the conventions of the role. But I'm advocating for a Governor-General that does more than just sit in the mud silently and do nothing. I don't think he sits in mud, by the way. <laughs> but there's a lot of room between those two, yes. you know? And the problem is, Hurley, like, Hurley's role, the way he performed it, let's just be unequivocal about this, could have been performed by a monkey, right? As long as you can teach a monkey to sign a document, what else has he done here? Literally nothing. So if we want more than a monkey in the job uh, or some sort of trained baboon, then you want to be able to get somebody who can actually think for themselves. But I agree, you don't want them to go off the activist end. You probably don't want someone like Michael Kirby, and, I, and I, I'm a big fan of a lot of what he does, but he was a very activist judge. You probably don't want someone you know, as activist as that. But I would take Kirby in a heartbeat ahead of this bloke because Kirby, as a judge, understands institutions even if he's a natural activist, all right? And he can think for himself. You know, like put somebody in this job who can think for themselves. And, and maybe I'm being unfair here, Hugh. I should say this because we, we don't know what conversations they had, right? So it's possible that Hurley was raising with Morrison some bits and bobs along the way, but neither man's willing to tell us what really happened. Well, even if that's the case, Hurley ultimately bought the BS that he was sold by Morrison, if that's the case, that this was okay. You can't sign off on this twice and then a year later sign off on three more and run the argument that you didn't know or that it wasn't relevant whether or not it was going to get published or not, that you assumed that it would be made more than secret because you've got 12 months to sit there and ponder the bloody thing. You know, and, and, and the fact that he wasn't intellectually curious enough to ponder over that 12 months whether this was right or wrong, that's not good enough for a head of state. So, so does that mean that we really need lawyers or people with legally trained? I do remind people that John Kerr was a lawyer of eminence mm. and a Labour Party appointment. But does that mean that you, that, that you need to be a lawyer? You can't have generals, you can't have other people who've come through civil society, that it's really you need a legal brain? Potentially. I mean, look, in some ways, I don't think that Hurley's failures here should, should reflect on all military people in the role, but I think they reflect on him, undoubtedly, in my mind. Look, John Kerr, we, we don't have time in this podcast for this, but I, I think that a lot of what Kerr did and intended to do was right. I'm a contrarian on this, uh, which is why I'm so uncomfortable about Hurley doing nothing, right? But I just feel like Kerr had processes that he went down that were wrong in terms of meeting with the opposition leader and all that sort of stuff, right? So he went about a decision to dismiss a prime minister the wrong way. And he made assumptions about what Whitlam might do, which I don't think are the right of the governor general. So the governor general has to risk being sacked by a prime minister rather than think, maybe I'm going to be, so I've got to get in first. That was Kerr's failure. I don't think his failure was to ultimately sack the prime minister, but there were a few steps that had to happen. He had to risk being sacked himself before doing what he did. That's a whole other discussion. But I don't think it's just a case of he was activist. He should have just sat there like Hurley style and not given a damn about the country and just let a prime minister do his thing, even if he ran the country into the ground via supply or whatever else it might be. Hurley would have done nothing. You know, Whitlam would probably still be prime minister today if Hurley was there. I mean, it's just, it's, it's off the charts. I think there still would have been elections. Look, we're going to take a quick break, but uh, I've got a couple more questions about this. Back in just a second. (music) 
This is episode 127 of The Professor and the Hack. And somehow or other, I kind of thought that we might talk about matters of job summits and, you know, the fact that we're, you know, people saying open up the gates. Well, maybe. There's still time, Hugh. But look, there's a couple of questions I want to put to you. Let me start with this one. The journalists who are writing the book have copped a lot of criticism. Mm. Should they, once they'd got this material or learnt this from Scott Morrison, have immediately run to the presses, which would have happened before the last election? Did they act unethically and properly or against the national interest by holding it to publish it with a book after the election? I'm not convinced that they're in the wrong on this, but... Uh, if they were listening to this, they may not like my reasons why. I've seen, obviously, there's a lot of condemnation, particularly on social media, uh, of both Simon Benson and Jeff Chambers for what they held back for their book. And as I understand it, based on Scott Morrison's media conference, it sounds like they were told it contemporaneously about the health portfolio. Now, the reason I'm not convinced that they're wrong here is because I actually don't think they quite appreciated what they were sitting on. Because when you look at what was reported in the book, the book... I'm holding it, or I'm looking at it uh, right now. The book that they are referring to, primarily the health one, I think they make a mention of the finance as well, but they're referring mostly to the health one. And they didn't ask Matthias Corman in finance whether he was also asked. They only asked, they only talked to Greg Hunt, as I understand it, with confirmation when it comes to Scott Morrison and health. And the, the health decision, had it been made public, was one that is, I think, entirely defensible. Yeah, you know, I don't necessarily agree with it, but it's entirely defensible. So I, I think the authors didn't understand or fully appreciate what they're sitting on because they've reported on the health side of it. They've done it in a positive way initially. Like their take on this is a positive one, that Scott Morrison was, you know, being cautious and all the rest of it. So I think that they unwittingly sat on something that they should have broken at the time. If they'd asked more questions about it, checked whether Matthias Corman was even told in finance, once they got the no to that, that would raise your curiosity instantly. And I think that's what Sam Maiden did when she went the next step. You know, she checked on whether or not Matthias Corman knew. She found out about the Keith Pitt example uh, in relation to resources. And then the questions kept coming. And obviously, it was Anthony Albanese's investigation that unearthed Home Affairs and Treasury, which none of us knew about. So the short answer to that, Hugh, is that they were trying to save what they thought was a good yarn for a book about Morrison's management of the pandemic. And as a result, where I'm critical of them, and you know, I'm, not, I'm not personally critical of them, but where you can be critical of them is that they didn't ask more questions uh, about what they had been told quite openly as a brag almost by Morrison. And as a result of not asking those additional questions, they didn't know the full extent of it. I would suggest that if someone like Simon Benson knew the full extent of this, I think that he would have been splashing with this in the paper somewhat contemporaneously, at least in 2021. And it probably would have brought about the end of Scott Morrison because his colleagues wouldn't have liked it. I think they would have rolled him. But I, I don't think that he knowingly or that either of those journalists knowingly sat on this. I think one of the things to support what you say is that they were in interested in a story about the management of the pandemic, hence the name of the book, Plagued. And they didn't come back or perhaps expect, no one expected, it was stunning to everyone to find it, that a year later he was still adding portfolios to his, uh, to his list and I think that's where the real story lies about how Morrison, having decided that he could get away with this, that the instrument exist, existed to, to, to do this thing, that then he starts to march off into other areas. And I think the, uh, the resources one is, is where you can see the megalomania working mm. and just the sheer trampling of everything that is our system of government, what ministers are for, what cabinet is for. You know, he's breached 
you know, claims that, he's, that, he, that he misled Parliament. He's, you know, Bridget McKenzie from the Nationals saying, well, he, you know, he breached the um, coalition agreement. By, by the way, Hugh, on that, not that we'd know because the coalition agreement's secret. Of course it is secret. The irony of that, my God. Yeah, but it's, but it's probably also true because what part of a coalition agreement would say, yes, we'll take this portfolio, but you know what, you take it too. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. That, You know, that's not part of a coalition agreement, no matter what might be. No, no. And, and, and if, we, if we want to be critical here, the person or the people that we should be critical of is not the journalists who I think didn't realise the extent of this story, okay? If they'd realised the extent of the story, sure, I'm critical of them for holding it back for as long as they did till after the election, yada, yada. But the people to be critical here of are Pitt, McCormick, and I believe Barnaby Joyce, all three of whom knew somewhat contemporaneously about what Morrison did in relation to the resources portfolio. Pitt should stand up on principle and resign, or at least complain loudly about this, not silently. And McCormick and Joyce, as the respective deputy prime ministers at different points in time during their knowledge of this, the idea that they would tolerate this and not do something about it, they're, they're the ones, other than Morrison and, as I say, the Governor-General, who have to be held accountable for this. It's mostly Scott Morrison and whoever in his office knew, but they're apparatchiks. So what you're, what you're arguing is that Morrison was unprincipled in what he was doing, and the Nationals, once they discovered it, were unprincipled in not making a stand against it. Yeah, well, they, they decided to put politics first in terms of the coalition relationship, countdown to an election, et cetera, et cetera. And, and I find that repugnant, uh, and I think it reflects on all of them. And it's the exact opposite of the way that Barnaby Joyce, at the very least, likes to paint himself. Pitt, too, for that matter. I mean, these are people who have been prepared to be mavericks throughout their career, and it seems like every time they get their hands on power, they, they lose their principles. Look, there is one other question I'll get you on, and that, and I, I think I know your broad answer on this, but Bridget Archer, the Liberal who got a swing towards her, of course, the moderate who'd crossed the floor in the last parliament, is saying that Morrison should reflect on his position as a continuing member for the seat of Cook. Uh, she says she's not going to call on a fellow MP to resign, but plainly the reflect on your position is coded language for precisely that. Morrison has indicated that he will stay on and will make a decision as to whether he contests the next election. So to the degree that we can believe anything he says, he says he'll see out this term. Do you believe him for a start? Uh, look, I, I, I think at this point, he's just trying to work out what, what, if any, other options he has. And that's what this comes down to. I've got no problem with a prime minister who loses an election, causing a by-election at whatever point suits them in the next term. They've, they've got a right to stay for three years, notwithstanding you know the, the tumult that he's created in the last week. Uh, they've got a right to represent for the next three years, but they've also got a right as a former prime minister if they find the right thing to move into to, to cause a by-election. It happens all the time. So a quick question on that right. Do the voters of the seat, in this case the, the electorate of Cook, have a right to expect that the MP that they've elected will serve a full term? Probably not. Oh, not with, I, I don't think so when they're prime minister, no. And But here's the real issue with this one, Hugh, which I think is fascinating. We're in uncharted territory on this one. Malcolm Turnbull was the first prime minister not to have the generous parliamentary pension, but that doesn't matter because he's worth hundreds of millions. And I don't think he even took his salary when he was prime minister. I think he donated it to charity. Scott Morrison is the second prime minister to not get a parliamentary pension. Anthony Albanese won't be the third because he was in Parliament in 96 and it's anyone who came in after 2004 onwards who doesn't get it. Now, this is important for Scott Morrison. It wasn't important for Malcolm Turnbull because of his independent wealth. Scott Morrison has two young kids in private school, a wife who in a traditional family structure doesn't work, 
and he's earning his $210,000 as a backbencher now in his post-prime ministership. He needs another job. He's in his mid-50s, early to mid-50s. He's not going to get the kind of corporate work that he might have hoped for, whether it's boards or executives, because you know, with good corporate governance, how on earth uh, can a corporate hire him after the revelations of secrecy that he's been involved in? And also an, ar- an arrogant character. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, the, all the things that you described, you don't want that personality on the board. Exactly right. And so I, I don't know what, I mean, I'm sure he'll find something. I thought the speaker's circuit was perhaps his best bet, which it still could be. Hit the evangelical speaker's circuit and make tens of thousands of dollars per speech abroad. Uh, I think he's the first evangelical world leader of an OECD nation. So that's something for him. However, you know, the the board work and the sort of thing that would bring in some sort of equivalent, if not more, of his current parliamentary salary, that's going to be harder now. I'm not saying it's going to be impossible, but it's going to be harder. And so, you know, leaving parliament isn't, if you like, the financial option for him that it has been in the past. In the past, Hugh, I mean, you know this, ex-prime ministers on their parliamentary pension would make more than they make as a backbencher, which is why Tony Abbott was so interesting. He was running at a loss staying as a backbencher for that term uh, in the hope of either getting back on the front bench or to cause problems to Malcolm Turnbull or just because he was, you know, if you like, Stockholm syndrome into his love of being in Parliament and Canberra. But the minute that he retired, forcibly at the hands of the electors of Warringah, his salary went up because I think they make up to three quarters of their final top salary. And they can add more to that without they losing can. the pension. That was the great beauty of the scheme is that that's not their pay. Mm. That is a baseline that can never be taken away from them, on top of which can go all the little you know, joys that they can add onto it. But Morrison doesn't, doesn't get that. And, and that, yeah. that is actually a genuine issue. Uh, I, and I have a problem with this, I should say. Like, I, I can understand how you don't need the generous scheme necessarily for backbenchers. I would argue, and I'd want to think more about it before being definitive on this, certainly for uh, for former prime ministers, but possibly for former ministers as well, for various reasons, I think that you need that sort of pension scheme, the same reason that you still have it for judges. But, you know, the horse is well and truly bolted on that one. We can all thank Mark Latham and John Howard, who acquiesced. Yes. Well, I, I do think about prime ministers that it's probably a good thing to to set some amount of money that they can have as as some sort of pension, in a sense, just so that they can you can get them out the door. You don't want them hanging around like Banco's ghost on the backbench. Backbench's salary. Yeah, backbench's salary. Uh, one of the other perks that went with it, which is important, is secretarial support and a, and a fully paid up office. They do still get that. Though. Okay, so long as they get that, because, you know, if, if that if that's still going on, because that does enable them to deal with as sometimes happens. I'm not sure if it'll happen much with Morrison. But they do get, they field an endless number of requests to turn up and speak to all kinds of community things, charity events. If you can get a former prime minister, it works for a charity, regardless of whether you particularly like the prime minister or not. And you just have to have someone who's going to cover all that for you while you're doing that sort of thing. They do, and they do still get that, which is good. They get, a, they get an office, they get a small staff and so forth for exactly that purpose, but they don't derive an income anymore uh, if they came into parliament from 04 on. Yes, I, I, I agree with you on this. Yeah, I, I think that maybe a backbencher's salary for life. I hate these sorts of things, but at the same time, I think that um, if you get to the prime ministership under our system, uh, you shouldn't. It's undignified for the nation, quite apart from the person. If you if you're then scratching around, most, most Hawke and Keating made a lot of money after being prime ministers, but you don't want an undignified situation going on. And if you looked at someone like, say, Julia Gillard. If she she was on the previous system, so she's quite well looked after. But if you saw her, someone in her position, if she didn't have that, 
And she was not particularly drawn to going into big corporate dollars and all that kind of business and has been more in the community sector with Beyond Blue and other sorts of things. Well, you don't want to see her, you know, in relative terms, fallen circumstances as a consequence of being prime minister. And, it, yeah, it would just change the game. So Julia Gillard is someone who has made the decision to essentially live off her parliamentary pension as a former prime minister, uh, which is generous. You know, it's sort of north of 300000 a year, I believe. You can struggle by. And, yep, yeah, so she's – and that's fine. She would no doubt be able to top that up here and there with little things, right? But she's essentially made a community service decision to do other things as an ex-prime minister that that pension can afford. And I, and I think that would be a real loss if she was on the new scheme, not the old scheme, such that she couldn't be on the board of Beyond Blue but had to sort of become its CEO and take a, a salaried position uh, and then devote herself entirely to that, not to the many other things that she also devotes herself to as a former prime minister of standing, particularly now. I mean, look at the, Hugh... I mean, we're on a segue here, but look at how Julia Gillard has conducted herself in her post-prime ministership compared to every other living prime minister. I mean, you know, John Howard hasn't done too badly, but he's a sort of tribal warrior and he, he has his moments. But the rest of them, I mean, even if you agree with some of what they do, it's profoundly undignified uh, in comparison to Julia Gillard would be the way that I would put it. You know, Rudd with his anti-Murdoch hysteria, not suggesting that he's necessarily right or wrong, but that seems to consume him. You know, Malcolm Turnbull is consumed by tearing down the Liberal Party. Tony Abbott, uh, he's sort of actually finding his ideological feet, but it's at the fringe of the right. And for a long time, he was consumed by tearing down Malcolm Turnbull. Uh, And, you know, all of them, right, compared to Julia Gillard, who I think has had such a dignity in retirement that none of them have. They used to say of Jimmy Carter, he, he wasn't the best president, but, but he was the best ex-president that America ever had. <laughs> Great to talk to you, Peter. Keep wearing those hats. Talk to you soon. See you, mate. You have been listening to The Professor and the Hack, a Network 10 podcast. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, subscribe in your favourite podcast app. Thanks for listening.